My guest today is country folk recording artist Mary McGinnis, an accomplished artist based in Nashville, and she is celebrated for her multicultural roots and relentless devotion to music. Her newest single, Once in a Blue Moon, is a prelude to Mary's forthcoming full-length album, Shadowcatcher, expected to launch in early 2024. Co-written with Jane Bach, this single portrays a melody-rich narrative of a love so rare it feels like a masterpiece painted by destiny itself. Now, with influences ranging from the Beatles to the iconic rock anthems of the 1970s and cosmic inspirations, Mary's music represents a rich and diverse tapestry of her life. Now, her multicultural heritage and glowing passion for music are reflected in her very well-produced records, promising listeners a unique and authentic musical experience. Mary's journey from her vibrant, culturally enriched background to her navigation through life's challenges accumulates in her latest project. And it's not just a musical endeavor, but a soulful exploration offering a glimpse into her life, her passion, her heritage, and her unwavering commitment to her art. Let's welcome one of the most beautiful voices in music today, Mary McGinnis, to the show. Welcome, Mary. Hello, Ward. How are you? I'm doing great. Wow, I've had the utmost pleasure to listen to a lot of your music, and I was even more, um, I guess, in awe of reading your background. So kind of walk us through, because with a multicultural upbringing, how are you introduced to music? Well, um, (laughs) I... I was born in Texas in Fort Hood. My dad was a Green Beret. My mother was Korean and I lived in Korea for a while. And then I went to live with my grandfather and his wife in New York. And I think that I was really influenced by a few things. I think my aunt lived in the home and she loved vinyl and she loved the Beatles. So I was really lucky to get that kind of soaked in to me um, by osmosis, I think. And I just love the Beatles. I mean, they're kind of the foundation for me of music, of everything I love. And um, my grandfather loved big band music. So I think I was exposed to a lot of older writers and, you know, like Cole Porter and Gershwin and and things that I don't know if anyone uh, my age was, no one was... (laughs) listening to that at home. And I I actually didn't really like it that much. But as I I got older, I started to really appreciate it. And uh, I also grew up singing my church choir. So I think um, also church music and and Bach, I remember. I love Bach. He's probably my favorite classical composer. And just some of that music is just incredible. So I think there's a lot of influences. And then, of course, I love all kinds of music. And uh, I don't know. I think it's kind of in your soul. I think so many people love music and it, it's just kind of the universal language for all of us. Yeah. And I think for most artists, mm-hmm. um, if they're smart, will is to listen to a, a variety of genres and not only, and then also from very particular times, you know, it could be, you know, the forties, a big band, or it could be the Beatles from the sixties and, and just mixing it up and just learning what other people are doing and maybe try to grow uh, an appreciation for either a new genre or maybe picking up some elements 
for an artist like you that eventually will record something uh, that, uh, that they have learned from someone else. It's true. I think you kind of soak all that in. And then, you know, if you're writing songs, I think it comes through in your own way, authentically. I think it's just kind of, you know, the influences and then it somehow you come out hopefully with something that's your own. Well, I understand that you uh, actually got a music scholarship for opera. How and why opera? <laughs> you know, I think it was because a couple of things. I think because I soloed with a lot of classical music in church. And then I had a high school music teacher who really loved classical music. And I seemed to naturally sing opera and sing it. Um, you know, and it's funny, my grandparents, they didn't really look as, at music as like something you could have as a career. And I think when they saw that I was singing classical music, I think that was somehow more okay for them <laughs> than if I said, I'm just going to pack a guitar and go off and just start playing guitar. And, um, and that just seemed also for me what um, I was lucky because I think that's the only way I really could have maybe not gone to college, but it really was a way for me to uh, be able to pay for school for to get a scholarship. And not that I didn't have student loans and stuff, but I, I did get a lot of help. And uh, so I was very fortunate to have gone that path. And I, I'm really, I'm glad I did it. You know, I get, I can understand where parents or grandparents would look at, you know, I've talked to so many recording artists and it's like, you know, go get a real job. And, but to, to think back, okay, with opera, classical music, or those that may be in an orchestra, those are probably the areas, especially if you're in New York, you could most likely get a job, a, a real job doing that. But yeah. playing country, playing rock, it's kind of like you're on your own. You know, you're not going to get really get hired. You know, it's like maybe playing for tips or something in, uh, at, at a bar or a lounge. But I can understand where the whole classical thing is like, yeah, that that that's stable employment. Yeah, I don't know. That was somehow more approved or, or something. It's just it's just strange. You know, I think about that. I don't know, kind of know why that happened. But I also had a deep love of classical music and I, I seem to um it seemed uh, easy for me to do that at the time. So um, no complaints. I mean, I, I left it uh, because um, I really wanted to start writing and, and I was influenced by so many other kinds of music that I couldn't see staying in that uh, world. Um, well, yeah. I even read where you performed on stage at Neil Simon Theater on Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that happen and what was that like? I got that while I was in school and uh, I, I tried to take like one class while I was doing it and it was not doable, but uh, I auditioned and I auditioned uh, three times actually. And um, it was amazing, but it's, you know, eight shows a week and you really, um, you know, I think everyone has dreams of Broadway and then maybe once you do it, you're, <laughs> you're Okay, I did that because it was it was a three hour show, eight times a week, uh, a year and a half of that, plus rehearsals of putting in new people coming in. And I mean, you're really I just remember that year and a half of just, you know, the alarm going off, running to the you 
Tanae's two hours in makeup every day as well and hair. And um, it was just, I loved it. It was an incredible experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's your whole life when you're doing that. Really yeah, there, there's there's no time to rest. There's no time to live your own life. And then if if you're if it's a hit on Broadway and ends up with a three, four, five year run, that takes everything out of you. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I laid in bed for <laughs> after I was just <laughs> got out of bed for like a month. Um, but yeah, and there were people who had done one Broadway show after another, and um, you know, that's, that's their life. And it's, it's a great way to, to do your art and do music. Um, I don't know if it's for everybody, but I'm very grateful that I got the chance to do it. Yeah. Cause you, you've had a lot of different experiences when it comes to music, but I was reading and, uh, how did you go from barely making it on the streets of New York city to making the decision and head to Nashville? Well, there was some time in between there. There was a lot of time. Yeah. Was it there? I think there was an L.A. between that. Yes, there was an L.A. in between there. Uh, uh, struggling on the streets of New York for sure. And then, I mean, I think that's just the nature of being an artist, too. It's like you can have, uh, I remember bartending in L.A. and someone came in from the Broadway show and they're like, you're bartending? I was like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you're not working or you know you're trying to do something else or uh it's that's the nature of being an artist i think um you have to be okay with that and uh so yes i was in la and that's kind of where i started um teaching myself guitar and started songwriting and going to open mics and you know i was also doing um and in new york i'd start doing like some acting or commercial that also helped me but it was always kind of a means to support my music so i've done like a million jobs that's for sure <laughs> and that's you that usually happens with most recording artists and i know that you uh went on to record uh at least what four albums with various producers uh but didn't you perform under a different name i did i'm not going to why did you do that? No, you don't have to tell us the name, but why did you do that? You know, I think I wanted to differentiate myself from what I had been doing. Um, and I thought, oh, I need to really, you know, make a change. And this is the change for, you know, you're like young and whatever. But um, and so, yeah, I made it under another name and I toured under this other name and different, you know, so, um, and then in 2020, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm good with my real name. And I feel really like it suits who I really am. I went back to my music. I also associated, I think, my real name with some kind of not so great memories of growing up and, and stuff. So I think I was fine with that. I had done my my personal work on myself. And so I was okay with being Mary again. Well, that's good. And you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, you know, but I think the whole LA thing is like, okay, what am I going to call myself? Going to be Ziggy Stardust or Cher? Uh, I need, it's kind of like, uh, I need just to have one name. 
you know, to be a star. And uh, but then finally, you know, people find out who they are uh, within themselves. But for you, you have this long history of doing so many different things, living in living in many different places that must really help your songwriting. I think it really has. And I think I underestimated how much the experiences would. And I think starting out as a songwriter, I was writing more about surface topics, more like poetry put to music. And I think, um, you know, I think we're always evolving as songwriters. And I feel like this record has more stories on it or things that really reflected what's going on in my life and just trying to tell it in a in a narrative or say it in a way that um, could also be, you know, music. So I think we're just, um, songwriters, we're always just trying to get better. Well, I also understand that, that you actually hit number one on the Billboard electronic dance chart. Was that under the, the pseudonym back in the day? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. What? Now, was that a shock to you? Yes, it was. And then I remember a friend of mine uh, called me and he had been number one and had a lot of hits. And he was like, so is your whole life changed? I was like, not at all. Uh, not right now. Uh, it was uh, also, it was funny. It was kind of happening after I had my daughter. So I really wasn't looking to tour. Uh, then I really didn't want to leave her. I really don't want to miss a minute. So um, it was really great. It's a great validation when something like that happens. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it was uh, a part of my life and my music evolving that I was finally like, oh, I, I don't want to do that anymore. That doesn't really feel like me. Well, you, know, I, you know, I kept playing a lot of your songs over and over again. And you have that sound Kind of like Linda Ronstadt. Um, but I think your voice... My favorite singer. Huh? My favorite singer. Yeah, She's my favorite think, singer of life. Yeah, and I think your voice um, is actually a step above hers. And, you know, when I listen to your song, Double Vision, which I love that song, Double Vision. It's pure sound of the 1970s. Uh, that's And, of course, that's, to me, that's the era when songwriting really mattered. Um, the song has a beautiful melody, but I think most of that attributes to your own voice. Wow. That's huge. I mean, I, I think Linda Ronstadt is just the greatest and, um, double vision. It's funny. That was, uh, I, I was still rewriting that the morning that I recorded that. <laughs> so that's I, usually I, how I, it happens. <laughs> And it did become one of my favorite songs. I wrote the words with Greg Becker, who's a great writer, and, and I wrote the music. Um, and I was definitely influenced by the 70s. I think I really, um, I remember telling the producer, especially at the ending for that kind of mantra, you're already there. I said, I really want, I'm also a huge fan of the Eagles. And I said, I really want that Eagle sound. And, um, you know, we really kind of aspired to that. And I just, I loved how it, how it came out. Thank you. It's one of my favorite songs too. Yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned the Eagles and that's one of my favorite bands. And and I guess with double vision, were you listening to things like a peaceful, easy feeling? Um, 
trying to think of some of the slower ones that they would do. You know, uh, nice. in town, Desperado, Desperado, one of my favorites. Um, you know, one of these nights, and so oh. which is your favorite Eagles album? You know, I'd have to say, and I have some of their vinyl as well, but I just love their greatest hits because I just love it's one right after another. You know, the one with the the oh yeah yeah the well, the, the, the horns yeah I just yeah. I mean I just love all their songs and it was funny I um I had seen a thing of Glenn Fry Henry Diltz the famous rock photographer had uh, had put him up on Instagram I was like oh man because I saw. Um, Glenn Fry's last tour at the Forum in LA. And I said, wow, I wonder what that footage is from. And it's January 22nd uh, of 2014. And I remember I was just looking at it like two days ago and I was thinking, wow, you know, they sounded as good or better than their records. They are so amazing. And I'm so, I had seen them once before at Staples, but the Forum was smaller and a lot more seemed like where they fit you know, and I'm just so grateful that I got to see him because he really is, um, if I could reincarnate as <laughs> a musician, Glenn Fry or John Lennon, I don't know, but uh, he is, you know, you know, their heart and soul. Just, well, you know, you know, now now that has me thinking, I'm wondering if uh, you should team up with uh, Timothy B. Schmidt for a duet. Oh, Wow. Amazing. I love his, uh, uh, I can't tell you why that's, that was his big hit and he is such a beautiful voice and his heart and his high voice, those harmony, he makes those harmonies. Um, yeah, he was amazing. Well, you know, and then it's, what was the other one is uh, love will keep us alive. Yes. And yes. a lot of people don't know that that song was not actually an Eagle song. Now, Timothy uh, co-wrote it with Paul Carrick. And, oh, okay. and Paul Carrick, of course, he's known from Squeeze and Ace and Mike and the Mechanics. And so both of them actually co-wrote that song and they were going to use it. And then that's when the Eagles uh, got back together. Oh, is that in the 80s, right? Did yeah, and so I think that was what... Uh, was that the Hell Freezes Over album when they got back together? And Timothy <laughs> called Paul because they were working on the album. And he goes, I need one more song. He goes, can I use uh, Love Keep Us Alive? And Paul's like, yeah, go ahead. And, and then that's why that song ended up on an Eagles album. Oh, wow. I mean, they were all such great writers. You know, oh, my gosh. Eagles, I mean, like they happen to be in this super group, but it's like all of them individually are so accomplished. Nope. Every single one of them, and the and their harmonies. I have the same birthday as Timothy Schmidt and um, Joe uh, Walsh. They both have November twentieth is their birthday. Oh my goodness! I yeah. didn't know that. I forgot about it. What you were telling me, I was like, oh wait, I have the same birthday. <laughs> wow, you know, it's I always love going back and reading the history of how certain songs ended up on somebody's album or what had transpired inside the studio where maybe there was a mistake made, but that mistake is what made that song iconic. I think and, that and to me, I don't know. Can you create, I, I can you create iconic moments with pro tools? 
<laughs> I think Pro Tools has its place, meaning that you have to create the iconic moment first. And then yeah. you want to, you know, it's a great tool for musicians and people to do it more, I guess, themselves and stuff. But I, I don't think you can lie in the studio. I mean, you can put a lot of layers and all kinds of stuff, but that stuff, you really feel that. I, I feel like you can feel it. What, something in the room. I, I remember I was recording at Sunset Sound in LA and they had up on the walls. I mean, it was like the Beach Boy and Pet Sounds had been recorded there. Another favorite record of mine and all these things. And it was like, you could feel it. You could feel there was just this vibe. You know, I'm sure it's probably, I've never been there, but like Muscle Shoals. I, I, I feel like probably all these really iconic recording places. I think all of that music is. Um, it's embedded into the walls. Yeah, it is. It'd it be is. like Abbey Road Studios. Oh, I can only imagine. Well, yeah, and there we go. There was the Beatles right then and there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were. You know, I, I, always, I always wondered, <laughs> what if artists today who have uh they, they use pro tools way too much um what if they could take if if they if they want to expand their talent this is how i look at it if you want to create a song in pro tools yeah i get it but why don't you go into the studio and recreate that but you and but put it on tape and well, and stretch and stretch yourself but of course most recording studios probably don't even know what tape is I think a lot of people I've been seeing, I, I know at Muscle Shoals, they record to tape. I saw someone saying they were recording to tape. I think I might've recorded to tape a little bit at Sunset Sound. I know, I mean, there's such a, I don't know the details, but I mean, it's crazy. You, they got to slice it. I remember them showing a thing of Brian Wilson when he, cause he used to be all into that and he's such a genius, but you know, um, slicing it and putting it together and you know i've just seen little things uh documentaries and stuff where they show the i mean talk about what a job what engineers had to do then you know as well I mean, it's it's like the okay so you brought up the beatles earlier most people have never realized what a recording session was like with the beatles so yeah george martin and they would be in the studio and a lot of people don't realize that let's say you picked up, they had a particular song that they're going to record and they would actually slow and say, say John's going to sing the lead. They would slow down the tape. So that way would, when, if somebody's listening to a Beatle record mm -hmm. and let's say somebody's like, Hey, let me grab my guitar. I want, I want to learn and play that song. They're listening to it as it's recorded from the vinyl. But if you studied it long enough and know how they actually recorded it, I'm surprised that anybody even knows how to play a Beatles song. <laughs> because it's, it's kind of like, like in Van Halen. You know, Michael Anthony got so freaking ticked off because, you know, a bass player is going to play 4-4 four, four time. Eddie writes all his music in three, four time. Oh, wow. So it, 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 it's like, can we just go four, four like everybody else? And he writes in three, four. And then that puts Alex, you know, having to, to change some things. 
but you know, brothers can be telepathic. So that probably wasn't a problem. And, uh, but it, I just love the history on how people record things. And then I wonder how people actually duplicate it live or say, I'm going to cover that song. And I'm like, if you only knew how that song was actually recorded. <laughs> well, I think that that's why like when, I mean, it's a great song. It can be done anyway, but I think then the artist has to, I just think it's a mistake to ever try to cover an iconic song, like really try to cover it because I, it's done. I mean, it's really done as great as it can be. Nothing will be as great as that recording. So you try to bring your own spin to it, knowing that, you know, you're kind of paying homage to that artist. Well, do you, do you ever go on Instagram and watch reels and watch people cover songs from other artists well i think that comes up everywhere now you know TikTok and real you know it'll, it'll just come up but i i mean i don't think i go search for it but i think it just comes up like yeah on your on your scroll <laughs> do you ever sit there and kind of be like simon cowell going <laughs> i'm just gonna I'm going to go, I'm going to bow out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the diplomat. Yeah. That's the political way. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got you. I got you. And, uh, I think but, it's you- like food. A taste in music is very different and everyone has a different taste. And I think it's like the same with food. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. We'll, we'll just keep it there for sure. Now I know that you have a couple of brand new singles out. Uh, you have a new one. Uh, Once in a Blue Moon. Tell me about it. Well, Once in a Blue Moon was the first single I started releasing um, in uh, end of September. And that's really kind of my attempt to uh, write more of a standard type of song. Um, of course, I wanted pedal steel in it. And because everything is a little better for me with pedal steel, uh, probably my favorite instrument. And Joe Pasapia, who was, you know, an incredible producer for me on this record. And he plays pedal steel. He kind of plays everything, banjo, mandolin, guitar, acoustic, electric. I mean, he was playing everything on this record. Um, And I had a lot of great musicians. Um, But I think, yes, that was just, I wanted to write a song that I had that once in a blue moon lyrics and the melody for, you know, I was carrying that around for a little while, but I finished it with Jane Bach and, um, yeah, I was really, it was kind of effortless once it was started. This was not a song that had to be rewritten and written over again. This was pretty effortless. And then um, and then I released Double Vision in November. <clears throat> oh, so Double Vision was after Once in a Blue Moon? Yes. Once in a Blue Moon, uh, moon, blah, blah, blah. Once in a blue moon was the uh, end of September. And and then uh, Double Vision was about five weeks after that. So. And then you have a brand new one that was just released, Touchstone. Uh, and Touchstone, when I was listening to it, it, it's a little bit more of a folk song, but it has a bit of a gospel tone to it. Tell us about it. Oh, wow. Um you're saying so many interesting things. I never thought of it that way. Um, I released Touchstone December because I just thought it was kind of a cozy song and kind of more rusticy and folky. And I feel like that's what I'm feeling. That's kind of what I want to listen to in December. And so I picked a song that I thought was just um, kind of a good feeling song, you know, about finding your center, finding Touchstone is really about 
music um, or being grounded in when you feel, you know, you can't find your feet, uh, finding what it is for you, whether it's whatever it is, um, having something to come back to or your family or, you know, what, whatever it is. So when, when people listen to your music, um, cause when I was sitting there, listening to all of the songs, it's almost difficult to put you in a particular genre. I mean, country, you know, today's country, you could pass for that. Uh, folk, there's a little bit of, there is that little bit of folk, but it's not overly done. And, but I think too, with the way pop is today, you'd cross over extremely easily. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's been um, interesting just hearing all the different genres or people <laughs> kind of saying, I'm not sure. I also feel like on this record, I didn't necessarily make it easy for anyone, anyone to figure that out because it's, I think it's pulling from all the kinds of music I like. There, there's something that's, there's a song that's very Celtic. There's something that's 70s and more yacht rock. And then there's kind of- Hey, yacht rock rules. You no, know, I, I love yacht rock. And then I feel like, and then there's, you know, something like more Eaglesy or it's, um, I, it, it just came out that way. I, and I didn't try to write anything and anything specifically. I just, I just went with how it came out, what felt good for me and what served the song. So, yeah. Um, and I noticed that on the song credits, you either <clears throat> wrote it or you co-wrote all of your songs. Yeah. But seriously, when you go back and listen to Touchstone, because when I said that it has a bit of a gospel tone to it, it has a little bit of that mainstream Southern gospel tone to it, not like the black gospel. I'm talking about that. So there, there's just there's just this element within that song, because when I first heard it, I was like, OK, yeah, this this would fall into the folk category, but there's this there's this extra layer there that if people pay attention long enough, they're going to go. Because my wife is like that. She, she'll listen to a song. She goes, did you hear that? And I go, hear what? <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like, didn't you hear the bell on the back? What bell? And so, all right. Like, hey, did you hear? Person here. Yeah, it's like, hey, did you hear him walking that bass? Say, what? And <laughs> so I was like, so, you know, you know, I, I'm the one that has to, you know, I'm the one that, that interviews all the recording artists, but the rest of my family's like, they can dissect a song like a surgeon. <laughs> oh, wow. So you come from a family. It's in your blood. Everyone is. Um... Well, I, I think it has to splash on me. And uh, so, so when I listen, I, ha I listen differently than most people. Yes, I listen to it. Okay, do I enjoy the song? Do I like it right off the bat? You know, do I have to speed 30 seconds into it to finally get it? Um, but I will sit there and listen to these songs over and over again. And I go, ah, it's kind of like me dissecting a movie for a film director. And you just, because, you know, like as for you as being a recording artist, you go into a recording studio and working with a producer, you're putting down multiple layers to, to create a piece of art. Do you feel like an artist when you're in the recording studio? 
I just feel like I'm having a great time. I feel like, you know, jumping up and down for joy. I mean, the recording of this record was the highlight of my year. Also because I've never laughed so much. This was a very, very funny group of musicians. And even they said they they hadn't laughed, like they never quite had an experience. Like we were just howling. Like when I listen back and I remember recording even some on my phone, I mean, I can't even put it out there, but I mean, people are just laughing. It was just a funny group of people besides being incredible musicians and great I people. get it. You know, I get it because it, it is so funny because, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on your website. I was listening to all of your songs and I'm thinking, okay, Mary McGinnis, she's, she's a serious artist. She, you know, she sings these, these deep lyrics. And then you come on, come on here and you're like, you're just like, you know, you're, you're like the one that brings all the laughter to the party. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <coughs> thank you so much. Um, I so you like, were the completely opposite of what I was expecting. Oh, <laughs> you thought I was going to be, mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, being, being on stage and, and pulling one of those serious, you know, 1940s, 1950s with a, with a Shore 55 microphone singing real close to it. <laughs> Well, oh, and you know, I have a funny thing about my, uh, the microphones I use recording. Really? We, uh, we tried all these expensive mics. We, we rented them for like one day or something, or they loaned them to us, like eight mics from Blackbird Studio here in Nashville. You know what all the, all the expensive Newmans that are five grand a piece? Yeah. Well, guess what? The the one that I wound up using, we call it the phony Sony. (laughs) It was like the the engineer, Joe Costa, was like, you know, I bet this mic is going to sound great on you. I, I don't even remember the name of the mic. It's But it's basically called the phony <laughs> so, Well, you know what? That's funny because used. <clears throat> there's a video of Ronnie James Dio. He walks into the studio because he's going to cut this song for an album with... I guess it was another artist or a group of artists and he brings his own mic and they looked at him like, why would some guy come in here with his own microphone? And then they go, Hey, can you just use this mic in a studio? And he just looked at him like, okay. And he does the song. His voice was so powerful that he was overriding their own microphones and they were kept trying all of these different mics and he finally goes i brought my own and so they hook it up he does the song they're in the control room going oh now we know why he brings his own mic because he knew what mic where his voice wouldn't blow it out or come across way too hot on the recording so yeah mics are everything yeah, I have to get the name of it. That's a good reminder. But yeah, it, it for some reason, this mic was just a right balance. Other ones, it would be too much or it'd be too dark or it would be, it was crazy. And it was like all the, the $5,000 mics and I wound up using the phony Sony. <laughs> that, that is that is so funny because, you know, <clears throat> you, you know, I wonder what it's like for a new artist that walks into a recording studio and has no clue that different microphones will change the sound and tone of their voice. That and of course, was, 
up to the producer. I mean, how many microphones did you have to go through till they figured out, no, this one's hers? Well, you know what? I was lucky that Joe did that with me and he was up for doing that with me because I said, can I come in for a day and just try out mics? Because you're singing on each one. I didn't want to like blow out my voice before I was actually going to record because I've done that too. And, um, but not all producers even think about it. I recorded records. I just went, use the mic. They said, here, here's your mic, blah, 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 blah. You know, so, uh, that was definitely me. I don't think that I was really aware of that um, till after a few records in that I started to say, wow, you know, I think the mic, you got to find your own mic. Um, that And that is weird that you say that because why doesn't a producer take the time with an artist to find the right mic? Now, I get it that, you know, they may be after a particular sound. And it's usually the producer that's after the sound, not a young artist, because the young artist still doesn't even know what their sound actually is. Exactly. And then to choose the right microphone, mm -hmm. because the whole point is, to me, when it comes to a song, what emotion and feeling does it cause the listener to have when they sing? And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the song is recorded what mic they're using, you know, so what overlays they could be using. But to me, just finding out the right mic in a raw setting, I mean, that's gold. That That's not only great for the producer, that's showing the artist what's best for them. Well said. You're totally right. And I was definitely, as a young artist, just immediately assumed that the producer knew everything, knew more than me, uh, that, okay, if you say that because you don't have enough experience, unless you have someone else mentoring you or guiding you saying, oh, make sure this, which, you know, I didn't have. And I think that is the plus side of having now done this for a longer period of time is that um, when I went to work with Joe, um, like I said to him, I said, you didn't just hear my music, you you hear me. He, he it was very much a, a, the two of us had the same vision like right away. Our first visit, I we were connected by a friend and I just knocked on his door and we wound up uh, talking for two hours. And I also I said, oh, could I just play you a couple of my songs? We finished uh, one song on it, Spellbreaker, the only song I had started in L.A. And I said, I'm stuck on this one part. So in two hours, we met finished a song, decided to record a few songs, which turned into a record. Uh, and, uh, but right away, you know, you just click with someone, but I feel a lot of it was that Joe just always let me be me. And I felt very, maybe that's why it was so childlike in that studio, because it was just so easy to, I never had to worry that it wasn't cool enough that I was going to say something. So was going to laugh at me that, or make me feel dumb because I didn't know something or, you know, you go through a lot of different experiences with different people. And sometimes it's um, about their own personal power and not necessarily about the music, especially. Yeah. You bring up something really, <laughs> really important that not just people who are music producers, but people in leadership in general, 
They need to realize that who they're talking to doesn't know everything. Don't treat them like they know everything. Be open to the fact that they don't know and it's your job to teach them. So it's kind of like the producer, you know, it's especially working with a, a young artist. The young artist isn't going to know Jack. They've been sitting in their room. They've probably been playing in a bar or a lounge, you know, performing for people, you know, practicing the songwriting, but then they finally have, have what it takes to go into a recording studio, maybe get signed by a label of some sort, and have the right producer to really mentor them through the whole process. So that way, the experience is made right then and there. So when it comes time for the next song or the next album, they're far more prepared than ever before. So true. Very true. And I think that that is... I mean, some of that comes from experience, but when you talk about someone being in a leadership role, I think that's also someone's personality, their, th you know, who they are as people, what they're, uh, you know, are they an artist too, in the sense that they're producing, you know, um, or are they in it for other reasons or, you know, and it's also about just being kind just about being that kind. Is the, that's the number one element. Feel, uh, you know, not included or like they don't know enough or, you know, I remember definitely being young and not knowing, a, you know, um, and I'll still sometimes feel, you know, have felt awkward in situations because if someone makes you not feel included, you don't feel included and that's okay. But now I can, I'll just like, okay, I don't want to, be around you anyway. But when you're younger, you don't know that. And you're just thinking, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, when is your hmm. album Shadow Catcher debuting? Next Friday. Really? Mm-hmm. How exciting is that? I'm so excited. I really am. I'm, I really, I'm the most excited about this record than I've ever been about any project that I've done. Truly. Wow. And I think what has been the feedback to those who have listened to the songs? I think really great. I think people, um, you know, are surprised and um, everyone seems to have their own take on it. You know, what like whether it's genre or what they think it reminds them of or that's what I love though. And that's why I often, you know, on my if I'm posting something, I won't always want to tell what the song's about. I really like people to just have their own interpretation of it. And um, it's been really, I've gotten some great, I'm starting to get some great support. I'm really grateful for it. Oh, fantastic. And you plan on touring on it? Yes, I do. And I'm, it looks like I have a tour shaping up in the spring, later in the spring in the UK. And uh, I already have another date. Uh, some dates to play in June as well. And um, and I think I'm also going to do a release show with my producer and everyone who played on the record. That's I'm just waiting for the date and I'm pressing vinyl. And so I'll also do a vinyl release and just, you know, there'll be a lot of shows this year and getting it out there, but I'm, I'm really excited. I well, you ought, you ought to be. Your songs are fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, you got to head over to marymcg.com 
and take a listen to her music, and I can guarantee you one thing. You will be an instant fan. And Mary, I've, I'm, and I've had a blast uh, with you today. You're, you're more fun than I expected. Uh, that is a huge compliment. <laughs> Thank you so much. I get a kick out of that. <laughs> She thought I was going to be all serious. <laughs> be one of those very serious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like having your entourage team powder puffing your face before you come on and, you know, and making sure everything's just right. But no, you're just, you're, you're just full of, full of uh, life. You're fun and funny. And uh, I think that when you, you know what, this may be, this may be kind of dumb, but uh, you may want to write a little, uh, maybe a little 30 second, one minute song and just call it Phony Sony. That's so funny. <laughs> I know, they kept calling it that. I don't even know what it is. I, I have to get the name of this mic because i got to use it again. But... Well, well, let me ask you this. Oh, I, was... my God, I haven't thought about that since I recorded. I was like, oh. <laughs> well, well, what kind of microphone do you use? If you're if you're um, singing in a venue, what do you bring? Oh, I just use uh, well. Usually, I just use whatever they have because their whole place is set up for that. Because I've done that. I'll always bring. Oh my yeah, sure. that would the, make sense. Inexpensive, sure, Mike. My, my that's what seems to sound good on my voice here. But whenever I go to venue, I bring an extra one, um, and I mean it kind of. Because sometimes you're singing on mics, I've been sung by a lot of musicians, and I know some people they're like wiping it down with faces. It's like, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring your own screen, right? Yeah, I mean, some artists do that, but uh, I tend to just use what the venue provides. Because so, really what what was that? What are the, what are they mostly using? Like a Shore 57 or a Shore 58? Yeah, that's always what I I wind up using, or the uh, Gosh, what it, it's the black one. It's totally, uh, oh, the OM something. It's also, um, I, I would get up and go check it out, but I'm not going to leave your screen. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. It's so, it's so funny how far technology has come, but microphones rarely change. You can't mess with success. You can't. And that's why, I mean, and some of those mics, you know, from the 40s and 50s, they're so expensive because they are so precious. They were done. Well, they're ribbon mics, too, back in the day. Yeah. And it's now there's just a few people in the world who specialize in these parts and that you can only get it from. It's kind of like finding someone to work on your Whirly now or your roads. And like having one person in L.A. and it's like, and I brought my roads over from LA, but it's like, yeah, now it's very few people that you get, get the parts or have them work on these instruments because they're really vintage. So, well, yeah, it's kind of like if you find somebody that actually has a Hammond B3, that's just gold. <laughs> it is, and it's, I've been where people lug it, you need a cart and it's a major to do to, uh, Right well, back. if you're bringing the Leslie with it, you will be. Yep. Yep. I've been there with people doing that. <laughs> I don't know. Does that make us sound old that we're the only ones that probably know what a Hammond B3 and a Leslie is? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of I'm seeing kind of a real resurgence in that. I, and I, I see a lot of like, like teenagers and stuff who are wearing a lot of like Led Zeppelin or T-shirts and 
I don't know, maybe they're just wearing it because they think it's cool, but I think that it's authentic, that they're probably listening to Led Zeppelin. So I love that. I think it's cool. Good That's night. it. <laughs> Mary, I've had an absolute great time with you on the show uh, today. And again, ladies and gentlemen, head over to MaryMCG.com. Again, take a listen to her music. Uh, stay updated on her website so you know <clears throat> where she's going to be touring. And that album, Shadowcatcher, is about to debut. So get ready. Buy the album. You know what we do on this show. We don't download for free. We buy the music. We support the artist oh. and everybody behind that album because that's what it takes to keep pumping out the most amazing music so it can continue to make memories for all of us. And Mary, again, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and you got to come back. I would love to be back. I know I could just chat with you all. <laughs> it's like so fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was really fun. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for watching and listening. And as for me, I'll see you next time.